Welcome to For the Love of Yoga. In this podcast series, we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. Today, we're going to talk about all the pitfalls along the spiritual journey. So as we get serious about our sadhana or our spiritual practice, what are the things that can get in the way of us making progress? I'm just going to share with you a bunch of ways that I fucked up. That's really all we're going to do today. <laughs> we're going to talk about pitfalls along the spiritual path, pitfalls that I often fall into day in, day out. And hopefully you might be able to recognize. Um, you might be guilty of some of these things. Um, and it's with humor and great compassion that we recognize that. So before beginning today, remember that the path we are on takes as its base understanding the fragility of the human condition. So we understand that what it means to be human is a rather complicated affair, that we are fraught with all sorts of karmic views, that we are pulled this way and that by desires, that without a formal sadhana or a formal practice, we are really at the mercy of our reactions, of our patterns. We're not very much the agents of our life as we like to think. And as we start to practice our sadhana, as we begin a spiritual journey, there is resistance. There is the pull of old patterns. So in this jungle of karmic delusion, we cannot really be too hard on ourselves. And I fluctuate between being a very hard taskmaster and a very compassionate one to myself. And at different times, you're going to be, need to be different ways with yourself. But just as a disclaimer for the day, as we go through these eight, seven or eight pitfalls, see if you can recognize yourself in them, but with compassion, with humor, laugh at it. So that being said, we're going to break down about eight of them, so let's start. But before we begin, I want to offer a new definition for suffering. Together, we've talked about suffering so many different ways. We talked about it um, in Buddhist terms, in the Four Noble Truths. We've talked about it in yogic terms from Patanjali, ignorance of your true nature being the source of your suffering, seeking permanence in an impermanent world, all of those. Today, I want to give you a new definition. Try it out. See how it is. My new definition is suffering is lack of space. The opposite of suffering is expansion or more space. So we'll just speak of suffering in terms of space. So let's see how it pans out. When you have a Sunday after like a whole Sunday to yourself, there's a great joy there. Why? I would argue because you have space. You have space to do whatever it is that you want. Now, if someone were to come and give you a bunch of errands interspersed throughout the day, you start to get agitated. There is suffering. There is some dukkha. What they are taking from you is your space. They are interrupting this temporal space that you have. Think about hatha yoga when you practice your asana. Why is there such a feeling in the body, such a wonderful bliss and lightness? Well, no other reason than perhaps because you're creating space. Every time you go into a forward fold, you are opening up the hamstring. There's more space now in the body. 
Blood is flowing into this space, irrigating, nourishing. So you've created space in the body, and now there's pleasure. When you are meditating, you step back from the thoughts, from the busy mind. Suddenly, there is a gap between your thinking and you sitting watching the process. So there's space, space between you and the thoughts. If you've been meditating for a while, suddenly you feel like every moment is enveloped, if you will, by this space. There's a sweetness, a peace, a joy, and it feels spacious. When you look at the night sky, expansion, space, you get excited. Um, so thus far, it seems like everything that turns you on has to do with space. Now, everything that hurts has to do with contraction of space. When you're forced into a role you don't want to fill, when you're working a job that you don't want to be working, when you feel as if projections or labels are limiting your self-expression, all of these are instances of contraction. So when a person feels sad, they tend to contract. There's a protraction of the shoulders, there's a scrunching up, there's compression in the back of the neck, all these space closing. In fact, uh, there's a place in California, it's called Heart Math Lab or something, Math Lab, not Meth Lab, but Heart Math Lab or something, where they investigate the relationship between emotions and biological processes. And at that research institute, there's quite compelling studies on emotions and the acetylation and myelation of DNA. So the DNA can myelate, which is unwinding, or was it acetylate? I forgot which was which, but it can also tighten up. So when the DNA widens, you get more um, immunity. When it tightens up, you lose immunity. So in heart math, there's a kind of correlation between happiness and uh, unwinding of the DNA and stress and compressing of the DNA. So even there, on a biological level, not even a cellular one, on a deeper level than even the cellular level, there is space. So maybe all we're talking about today is negotiation of space. In yoga, we say, yoga chitta vritti nirodaha, yoga is the cessation of the thinking mind, or the mind stuff. And that creates space. So let's now, just for a moment, suspending disbelief, accept that joy comes from space, and the job of yoga is to create more space in your life, to give you more possibilities for expression, expansion, and joy. So anything that takes that space away necessarily is an enemy of your spiritual practice. Not to see it in terms of enemies and allies, you know, no William Burroughs here, no Zoroastrianism, no dualism. Just the sense that certain things create space, certain things take it away. So with that very objective framework, let's look at a few ways in which your spiritual practice can be harmed. The first one, and this is probably the most important, having an incorrect orientation with regards to what your spiritual practice is about. And there are many ways this can manifest. On one level, we're all familiar with the person who goes to yoga for whom yoga is just stretching. So they miss out on the whole structure and system of yoga. They miss the potential of yoga as a tool for liberating themselves because they don't know. They're just unaware of what else there is in yoga. 
And they just haven't been told otherwise. For them, yoga is just something you do with Vinny in the studio, you know, some down dog, I feel good, okay, it's my Pilates, it's my workout. So that's one benign way that this can happen. But there's so many other ways too as you climb the ladder, so to speak. Not that there is a ladder, but allow me the metaphor. As you know, get further into your spiritual path, there's so many ways that you can be wrong about what you're doing. So basically, I mean, practicing without theoretical grounding can get you into trouble. So if you just practice yoga, if you just do energy work, if you're just doing Kriya, but you don't understand the philosophy that underpins those practices, or if you're not hip to the um, framework in which those practices exist, those practices themselves won't really help you. And I like the way... Um, Harish Wallace actually says it. He says, if a good, if a person with the right orientation practices yoga, they will become a saint. But if a jerk practices yoga, they will just become a more effective jerk. Because ultimately, what yoga gives you is power. But that power will just exaggerate what's already there. So the world is full of stories of really horrible yogis, like Bikram, for instance. I mean, I don't want to judge. But, you know, the whole debacle of Bikram's court case and the sexual assault. And then you hear about Patabi Joyce, who is also a sexual offender. And you think, wow, how is it that these really high up there yogis, you know, have been practicing yoga their whole life, can fall into these traps? And then you realize, oh, you know what? They weren't spiritual seekers. They were just stretchers. And even the stretching gives you a lot of power. But if you don't know what the ends of your practice are, you'll just use that power to satisfy the biological cravings that you had in the first place. So now that's the problem. Wrong view, welcome, Bilan, welcome. The wrong view or the wrong understanding of why you practice, who you are, what the world is, and what it means to be satisfied can cause you to use your practice as a way to just satisfy things that will ultimately trap you, things in which you won't be fulfilled, satisfied. So that's one of the deepest threats to practice, not really understanding enough. So study is very important. And that's why when I decided to teach with Stayom Yoga, I felt like it was very necessary that we meet once a week to just talk philosophy. Because if you're practicing your yoga every day, it's really not going to get you anywhere, um, except in a position where you are more effective at perpetuating your samskara or perpetuating your karma. So if you have patterns and react reactions, if you're still craving power, um, if you're still craving like sexual conquest or whatever it is, the yoga will give it to you. You'll get all sorts of siddhis. You'll be able to influence people. You'll be able to know what's going to happen before it happens. But all that means is you will be even better at creating suffering for yourself. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, practice alone is dangerous when it is not grounded in correct understanding. So it's important to study. So that's the first thing, lack of study. And I cannot stress this to you enough. People do not study enough in their practice. You know, it's a, it's a serious problem where a lot of people assume that the practice alone will get them there. That if they just do it every day, you know, they do the kriyas, they do the asana, they do what it is that they do, they meditate or whatever, they'll get there, you know, somehow. And I think there's a funny quote, um, there's a Chinese proverb, 
Um, be careful where you, what destination you set because you just might get there. That appears in the Harish Wallace book as well. I was just reading it. And I thought, yeah, yeah, correct. Correct. What you want, you'll get. That's the problem with yoga. If you want power, you'll get it. You'll get it. You know. And the whole be careful what you wish for, right? So that's the thing. If you don't know what it is that's worth getting, you're going to get something that will just make your practice harder. So that's the first one, wrong view, lack of studying. Um, and that leads to another thing. Without this studying, there can be a lack of humility. And you might start thinking that you're doing something special. So the next one, I'm going to call it spiritual materialism. It shows up in many ways. But one particularly pernicious way that it shows up is you using your spirituality as a way to further your identity or to enhance your sense of self. So if being spiritual is important to you as part of your personality, you're in danger. That is, if you're starting spiritual practice, they say in Hermetic Magic, actually, don't spill the cup of Hermes, meaning don't talk about your magic. Don't post pictures of your tarot cards on Instagram. In fact, don't wear anything that would denote you as a spiritual practitioner. So don't wear any ornaments or anything like that. Try to be as normal and ordinary as possible. That's one of the prerequisites when you're practicing Western ceremonial magic. It's for a period of one year. You have to stay incubated in silence. Um, and the motto is to know, to will, to dare, and to keep silent. You know, silence is powerful. In that incubation, your spiritual practice goes, grows. But the problem is we get so excited about our spiritual practice that it becomes who we are. All we're able to talk about is spirituality. The way we relate to others is only on the level of spirituality. We lose grounding. We no longer go and like watch friends with our friends, go to the gym and hang out, you know, or watch movies or just do mundane stuff that keeps you grounded. You're no longer able to have a mundane kind. That's, that's all fine. But there's no problem in that insofar as you're not taking it too seriously, or rather I should say you're not taking yourself too seriously. The problem comes when you start to think that you're special because of your spiritual practice. So I just want to tell you a bit of a side story. Um, okay. And, 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 this side story is actually for advanced practitioners. Um, because in the beginning, there is worth to melodrama. Like romance and uh, all that stuff is helpful for you to keep you excited, to give you an initial sense of momentum. But what might have helped you in the beginning will become a crutch in the middle and in more advanced stages of your spiritual practice. So just to dispel a romanticism, um, I want to tell you the story. Because there is, and I will say, a lot of romanticism surrounding yoga. After all, this is a practice that supposedly has, you know, reached out to us from beyond time, from time immemorial, before writing, before civilization. From the mists of time comes this ancient practice, the Rig Veda, the Yajur Veda, Soma Veda, Atharva Veda, these early oral liturgies are couched in such divine language, ah, handed down from the gods, you know, whatever. So there's that myth, that romance. And when you start to study yoga, you encounter gods and goddesses, mudras and energetic gestures, sacred syllables that evoke deities, all sorts of mystic experiences. You know, that's all there. And it can, it can be very romantic. It can be very like, wow, look at this. Look at what I'm doing. 
you know? Um, while Carl drinks beer and watches sports, I'm hanging out with Durga in my yoga shala, you know? How cool. How elevated, you know? Here's, here's a story. So, um, Hatha yoga or asana, at least yoga is the way it is practiced now, does not appear on the scene until at least about 1000 AD, you know, 900 AD, maybe 1000 AD. That's pretty late. That's like the Middle Ages of India, you know. It did not appear 7000 BCE. In fact, nobody really knows what they were doing 7000 BCE. In modern, um, what do they call it? Indic studies. In modern Indic studies, there's people are throwing up their hands. You know, they're just like, we don't really know. Um, it's an oral tradition. And yes, the oral tradition is very accurate. So they did do a study where they checked the singers or storytellers in all the four corners of India. And they found the stories were relatively the same, even though they were separated and never met each other. So the oral tradition is strong. But what does come down to us, not a lot of practice comes down to us. So believe it or not, yoga gets mentioned like twice in the Vedas. One in the Rig Veda, yoga is union. That's it. You know, all the other verses are hymns to gods, ways to make rain come down. But that's it. Yoga is union. Nothing else. In Atharva Veda, yoga is pranayama. That's it. Nothing more. No codes, no manuals, nothing. So all this history, right? It's kind of like a romantic presupposition. We don't really know what those people were doing, frankly. <laughs> and then, you know, Patanjali writes the Yoga Sutra and, and the Buddha shows up and there's more writing. There's, you know, more tools and structure and all that. Fun. Fine. Now, in 1000 AD, the first century, um, the poses start getting invented. So towards the end of Tantra, we're starting to see the body as a way to connect with the divine. And so poses get developed. But there aren't a lot of poses. There are like four of them in the beginning. And most of them are meditation postures. Finally, you get about 84 poses in total. Um, but this was nine guys. Nine guys came up with it. Like scruffy, really skinny, underground sages came up with these poses. Who knows what they were thinking, what they were saying. You know, they could have been way high for all we know. Hiding in a cave somewhere. Um, Drinking soma or smoking God knows what. You know, this is totally just something that they just might have dreamt up, you know? So let's like, and, and the romance of it is the God Shiva came and gave these poses or nature thought these poses. They're all energetic, you know, whatever. But we don't know that, right? It's just these nine gods. So here in the story, this is maybe the clincher. Yoga does not, like these poses don't become very popular. They're really underground. No one's really doing them except maybe these nine guys and a small following. It's very indie, you know. But many, many, many years later, in the early 20th century, a man named Krishnamacharya, when he was a boy, he was a spiritual prodigy. So he was just one of those kids who um, mastered the Vedas, mastered the Upanishads, all the Indian texts at a very young age. And he would debate old men, you know, he would win those debates. He was a spiritual prodigy. Um, he started getting interested in the poses. As any 16-year-old boy who kind of masters the rest of all the abstract theoretical stuff, he's just interested in the poses, you know, he wants to do something physical. But no one in India was doing yoga, or at least yoga in the way we talk about it then. So he asked, where do I go to learn this yoga? And they said, go to Tibet. There's a master there teaching the yoga. So this man, you know, this savant, if you will, goes to Tibet, but he gets stopped at the border. He gets stopped by a British officer who won't let him pass. 
And he says, no, 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 you're not going to Tibet. And he says, I have to go to Tibet. And he says, no, you're not going to Tibet. And he goes, no, 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 I really have to go to Tibet. So um, the British officer says, fine, what are you doing in Tibet? Why do you have to go there? And he says, I want to study yoga. And the guy says, what's that? And, you know, our spiritual savant says, yoga is a bunch of poses that you do to make you feel better. And the British officer said, oh, I have diabetes. Um, I'm not feeling too good right now. If you teach me these poses and I do feel better, then I will let you go. And so he does. The first ever therapeutic yoga class is invented in the early 20th century. Um, Krishnamacharya, which is our guy, goes, meets the guru. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This story, right? He goes and he meets the guru and he learns his poses or whatever. Then he comes back um, and he starts doing yoga in the streets. He like thinks that this is something that people should be doing. It's very therapeutic and helpful. So he starts performing in the streets, doing yoga. He attracts the attention of the Maharaja of Mysore, who invites him over to the palace and says, show me some of that yoga stuff. That's very cool. And the Maharaja is just interested, you know, in the, in, in the stuff, in the physical athleticism. Do you know why? The Maharaja of Mysore was obsessed with British gymnastics. So this was during the colonial period of India, where there was a lot of exchange with the British. And he was just really into British gymnastics. So he took Krishnamacharya, put him in front of a group of Indian gymnasts who were trained by the British, and said, teach them this yoga. They might enjoy it. And Krishnamacharya thinks, well, I can't teach them the classical yoga because that's just sitting in poses. That's no fun. Maybe I'll use some of your gymnastics. So he starts to invent these sequences, you know, the sun salutations and all that stuff. So really, what you are learning is not some ancient spiritual tradition. You're just learning British gymnastics. How's that? You know, how's that? That just, ugh. And, and you know, for a beginner... You don't want to hear this. You don't want to hear this as a beginner. For a beginner, it's important that you have this romance that like this is this ancient, oh, this sun salutation. They must have been doing it by the banks of the Ganga. Probably not. You know, back then they didn't, they thought the body was impure and the body has to be transcended. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's unlikely that they would have been doing sun salutations before Tantra that happens 980 anyway. Right. So they probably were chanting and singing. They loved to chant, right? They were chanting all the time. But they probably weren't doing this yoga. So that's important. It's important to kind of disrupt this romanticism sometimes. Like all we're doing when we get together is practicing British gymnastics, you know? And that's important. So that's why a lot of the yogis aren't yogis. They're British gymnasts like Patabi Joyce and Bikram and, and these people, they trained in the asana. But know that the asana alone didn't do it for them, you know? It made them powerful, made their bodies powerful, but it made them feel special. So can we just maybe for a moment entertain the idea that we're not doing anything special? We're not doing anything more sacred than knitting. You know, it's just a hobby. It's just like a thing, a pastime that we do. Um, and it's really not that much different from video games. We do it and we feel good. You know, and so we chase that. So that's 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 one thing I wanted to say with regards to spiritual materialism. Don't let the practice make you feel special and don't let it be part of your personality. So have something more in your life, you know, um, that you maybe might draw identity from. Because here's the danger. If your identity is in spirituality, then when your spirituality starts to tear apart the ego, you will stop there. So you won't progress on your spiritual path 
because your entire personality is spirituality. So once your spirituality becomes antithetical to your sense of separateness, your sense of ego, that spirituality no longer serves you. Because ultimately, that's what spirituality does. Um, as you continue to sit in meditation, you identify less and less with the drama of your thoughts. And you as a person are nothing more than the drama of your thoughts. And when you start identifying less and less with that person that you think yourself to be, um, and at the same time, that person is a spiritual person, there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance. If that person isn't, if that person is just a guitar player or whatever, then it's okay, you can surrender it. Do you see? It's very subtle, but one of the worst hats you can wear is the spiritual hat. Um, but there are other ways too. So for instance, where before your pattern might be, oh, I need a Ferrari. A Ferrari makes me feel special. It makes me feel higher, elevated. You know, in school, I got bullied and I got made fun of. So now I need to, you know, show everyone that I made it. I'm successful. At least I got to show my mom, right? So here I've got a Ferrari. Um, then I need a building. Like I'll call it Trump Tower or something. You know, I need a building. Um, all that stuff. Like you realize that your, your quest for a self starts to manifest first in material acquisitions. And then you realize like, oh, that doesn't really do it. So you start to identify with other stuff, you know, maybe cultural acquisitions. So there's a way that very wealthy people can hoard culture too, showing off what box symphonies they're into, you know, how um, tuned their aesthetic sensibilities are, how fine their palate. You know, Salvador Dali says, wine doesn't, one doesn't taste wine, one savors of its secrets. How pretentious, you know, stuff like that, like, like flaunting your aesthetic uh, appreciation, all that stuff. It's another form of materialism. You're using something else to differentiate yourself with the dinner party. You know, you're making yourself special. So at the dinner party, you're showing people not just your Ferrari, but your knowledge. You're showing them how well read you are. Do you quote often? You know, where's that coming from? Like, are you sharing or are you just showing that, oh, I can quote? You know, I read Khalil Gibran. I memorized Khalil Gibran. Oh, you know, how special. And the problem is people will think you're special for it. You know, you'll get validation and praise. And that's the danger. So you start to build this tower and you become less and less grounded, more and more separate and more and more suffering. So once you get to a certain point of suffering, that's when spirituality starts to show up in your life. You realize none of the narratives that you used to buy into, none of them are serving you anymore. So you look for new narratives. And then spirituality becomes really interesting, really exciting, because it gives you a new way of looking at yourself and looking at the world, a way to work with yourself. But then the tragedy is the same patterns that brought you to suffering in the first place start to get manifested in your spiritual practice. So suddenly you want to do headstands at the front of your yoga studio. Suddenly you want to sit and meditate in front of people. You want people to know that you've been meditating eight hours. You really want to talk about astral projection. You know, you really want to flex in a way. So that's very subtle. It's a very subtle danger because you're excited. You know, you're excited about your spiritual practice, but that excitement gets co-opted by the ego and gets used to further enforce your separateness, you know? So it's no longer, oh, Nish who owns X or Nish who um, is able to do Y. It's Nish who is spiritual like this, you know, it's spiritual Nish now, you know, just a new hat, new mask. And it's a more pernicious mask because you feel like it's doing you some good, you know. So that's the thing. Yeah, that hat is dangerous, the spiritual materialism. Now there's another way that it manifests. And this is particularly true for me. I love stuff 
I have a son in Taurus, you know, I love acquiring things. I love money and stuff, you know. Um, and the moment I quote unquote started to renounce, renounce and start to stop collecting material acquisitions, I just went and collected spiritual acquisitions. You know, I was excited about my beads, spiritual outfits, um, going to new studios, Yoga West to see what Yogi Bhajan is doing, bought a million books, you know, I just was hoarding, like, you know, um, Hannah makes a really good point. She says, how spiritual are you really if you're hoarding jewels like a dragon, you know, like you're like crystals, oh, I need a tourmaline, now I need a rose quartz, <gasps> someone said I have to work with selenite, oh, you know, you're hoarding, hoarding like a dragon, you know, uh, I got to try all these different incenses, sandalwood's not enough for me, and, and there's merit to that in exploring, and it's good for a beginner. Yes, correct. <laughs> it's good for a beginner. A beginner is excited and they, they need to explore. They need to check things out. But after a while, you notice, oh my God, I'm just hoarding. It's just spiritual materialism. You know? So watch for those tendencies. Um, then, spiritual materialism is also sense gratification. So, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Bilal. <laughs> And, you know, like last time you realized that, oh, I was addicted to pleasure. Like it was cocaine and chocolate cake and that wasn't doing it for me. So now I'm spiritual. But you're still chasing pleasures. You're chasing highs. You're chasing the high after meditation, high after um, shavasana, all that stuff. So, <laughs> right. And we'll, we'll talk about chasing highs in a bit because for the beginner, it's good. It keeps you on the path, you know. Um, but the, But has anything really changed? You know, you wanted to stop being the person that was obsessed with stuff. You wanted to stop being so egotistical. You wanted to stop being so addicted to sense gratifications. But has that happened? Instead, all your new stuff, your new sense gratifications, your new ego um, enhancers are, are just spiritual stuff now. So nothing's really happened. This is dangerous because on the surface, it looks like something is happening. You know, you'll be applauded for it. You'll be celebrated. Um, people will look to you as teachers. You know, and then you will realize as you're teaching how utterly hypocritical it is, you know, because you're looking at people, telling them to drop their pleasures. And at the same time, you're still chasing pleasures. You know, there's an imbalance there and they'll smell it. That's the thing. And then everybody smells it and everybody knows that there's this kind of like corruption in the spiritual community. Um, so that's something dangerous in California. It's very uh, faddish. You know, it's very hip. To be spiritual. There's the best Instagrams are the spiritual crystal hoarding ones, right? <laughs> so anyway, there you go. Um, spiritual materialism. The, the one that comes from that though, and this one I think is, is particularly close to my heart. So this is number four. Uh, sorry, number three. Attachment to methods. You know, this is a really dangerous one. Because there, there can be a point where you start to see your means as ends. So your methods become the point. Um, this happens, like for instance, I noticed, um, a long time ago, I, when I got to California and started to teach and be in spiritual circles, be in the spiritual scene, I met a lot of like raw foods, vegans, you know, and, and, and on the surface, it seemed like I really liked what this was about. You know, the diet was very in line with mine. The goals are very in line with mine, but something just seemed kind of off, you know? Yeah. There's so many of them. There's such a community here and that's good. And it's, it's all leading to a positive place, of course, everything in due time. But something fell off to me. I don't know, there was, there was a vibration there that I didn't like. I didn't know what it was. And then I realized it was an obsession with food. 
You know, it wasn't using food as a way to make your spiritual practice lighter. It wasn't food as a method for meditation. It was just food in of itself, as if you could eat your way to nirvana. You know, that if you just somehow managed to eat a goji berry a day and nothing else, that alone is enough to get you there, you know? And then all the Instagram posts are about how raw the food is, you know? Like, look at me, I'm breathitarian purple Eric. I live in the forest. Here are my, you know, vegan meals. Like, look, look at me, I'm a vegan chef, you know? And the whole thing is just, <laughs> it's just that. Um, and I don't know, like, if, if that's a genuine passion, like, if you're a chef and you want to cook and food's what you love, sure, that's fine. That's not what we're talking about. The problem becomes when your method is everything and you don't go beyond the method. So that's kind of like the spiritual, by, uh, it's not bypassing, spiritual materialism we were talking about before. But in this sense, the method that is very helpful, um, you get caught in it. You get obsessed with the method and you mistake the flower for the fruit. You know, so that's one thing. You see it in yoga a lot, um, poses. People are perfecting their poses, and that's good. Like, you need to perfect your poses. But the poses aren't the point. The poses won't get you all the way. And it even happens in meditation. Meditation is, is the, you know, practice par excellence of yoga. All yoga leads to this practice. You know, but even meditation... You can be really excited about meditation, just want to do meditation. So I'm like a meditation junkie. I love to do it. Um, I love doing it with people. It's like, turns me on, excites me. But, you know, like, what's it for? Like, what am I doing it for? And, and then I remember, oh, meditation, it's the method. It's, it's not the goal. You know, so there's a way you can be very attached to your method and treat it as if that's all you should be doing. And that can keep you stuck for a while. You know, you, you start to perfect your method and obsess about your method and there's more mind stuff and you're not going anywhere, you know? So that's a danger, being stuck to your method. Um, and uh, like going on top of that, number four is limited goals. And I'm sure a lot of you, you know, you've had spiritual goals, uh, you know, preconceptions about what spirituality is to you. And then you go hang out with a meditation group and you want to learn meditation. Maybe it's TM, you know, transcendental meditation. And you go and all they want to do is boost productivity in Silicon Valley. Like all they're interested in doing is meditating so they can code better. And you go, this is so limited. This is not what I want. These goals are a little too small for me. Or you go to a yoga studio and it's all about abs and buns. And you're like, no, 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 I, I want a little more out of this. Yeah, it's like fitness yoga, you know? You crave more. And you start to go to many spiritual scenes and you start to realize, like, wow, there are a lot of ways to be spiritual, but be really limited in your goals. Like, what are you doing it for? So ultimately, the highest goal is moksha, or um, liberation. So that only comes when you so fully realize that no sensual experience, no ego gratification, and no, to say, experience in the world is really going to fulfill you. No seeking any external thing is really going to do it for you. Um, only then do you have the highest goals. But short of that, your goals might be limited. And this is one of the pitfalls where you're not really practicing spirituality. You're just, you know, um, using the techniques to get limited goals, which as we discussed earlier, can cause more samskaras and attachments. So the, the thing that I think we really have to put forward is to ask ourselves, honestly, what we're in this for? Like, why are we doing this? You know, it started maybe with a call, 
there was a calling to engage in spiritual activity. Um, but did we really analyze like what happened since then? You know, because the call comes and you're on your yoga mat, you're at a philosophy class, like you're doing all the stuff. But then along the way, all these ego motives can co-opt your spirituality and then you might lose your way. You might forget what the goal was or worse yet, you never articulated it to yourself. You felt the call, but it was very subliminal. It was just an urge, but you haven't yet maybe articulated to yourself what the point of all of this is, you know, and that's important because there are going to be moments of shamsaya or doubt moments in your meditation that you will encounter obstacles. And then you have to ask, well, what, what, what am I, you know, what am, what's my sighting here? Like, what, what's the long term? And that might inspire you. But if you don't really have it, those moments of samsaya or doubt can be really acute. They can start to be really debilitating because you don't know what you're in it for. So that's something to say. Now, after that, five, and this is a very common buzzword, spiritual bypassing. You know, we've all, we've all heard that word. Um, but this is interesting. This is interesting. Because uh, when people become spiritual, not only is there a risk of spiritual materialism or attachment to methods, but there is also a tendency to run away from those things that you really need. And, you know, we we're talking earlier about chasing highs. Like if you're into spirituality because you want to feel light after a detox, like that's all you want, then you're going to stay away from the work that you need to be doing. So you're not going to hang out with your parents. And I think it was Gandhi. I don't know. Ram Das quoting Gandhi, I can't remember, who said, if you think you're so spiritual, go spend a weekend with your parents. Right. It will show you immediately how unspiritual you are. So if, if you are, you know, chasing highs, you might be unwilling to see where you're not. You're only interested in seeing where you are, but it's seeing where you're not that you need to be to, that's where the work is. So it's the stuff that gets your goat, the stuff that, um, induces your traumas, brings out your dark side. That's the stuff that you need to be focusing on the lows. You know, you need to figure out why that's going on. And that's the stuff. But um, spiritual bypassing is just the tendency to say, I don't have to deal with that stuff because I'm not a human being. You know, I, I've, I've transcended. I've finished with the world. You know, I've gotten to a level of understanding about who I am and who the world is that automatically excuses me from any responsibilities that I need with other people. Now, you might have been in a relationship where people start to like use, um, spiritual terms to say really banal, banal shit, right? They're like trying to break up with you and they're like, oh, our charts don't really, you know, cannot. Sorry, you're triple Pisces and, you know, it's not, it's not working. Or they're trying to like, just, they just want to hook up, you know, they just want to hook up. And then they're like, oh, it's free love. You know, we're just souls. We're, we're spiritual beings. We're not on the physical plane. Or they'll be like tantric sex when all they really want is, you know, that physical orgasmic experience, but then they'll dress it up in spiritual terms where it's like, oh, we're, we're quantum entangled, baby. We're two souls entwined. Let's fuck. You know, like there's so many ways that you can use spirituality. Um, uh, broke up because yeah, no, no, exactly. Like co-star shows up, you see the compatibility. You're like, nah, there's so many ways to use this language, you know, to just do really immature stuff like ghosting people. And that's why we talk a lot about the yamas and the niyamas, you know, telling the truth, not stealing, non-harming, all these basic attitudes a yogi should have. You'd be horrified to see people who can do headstands and meditate for seven hours, horrified to see the way they treat waiters, you know, or worse, the way they treat meat eaters because they've internalized that they're better. 
you know? And the Dalai Lama eats meat, by the way. Isn't that crazy? The Dalai Lama eats meat. <laughs> Lots of great Tibetan masters eat meat. Um, and Sufi masters eat meat. So surely there's not really a connection between the two. It's, you know, um, and more to the method, right? Like we were talking earlier about the method. All methods, they're just there to decrease agitation in the mind. But if your method causes more agitation in the mind, then it's counterproductive. So for instance, if you say, oh, um, to be spiritual, I can't eat X, Y, and Z. But then when you're meditating, all you're doing is craving X, Y, and Z. Your method is counterproductive. It's good on the surface because everyone will think you're so holy. Like, oh, here I am, my, my robes, you know, look at me. Um, I'm raw foods, look at me. But actually you're sitting and meditating, craving steak. You know, that's why Jesus in Matthew says, um, whosoever looks upon a woman commits adultery. Because Jesus knew it wasn't about the act. It was about what the act is doing in your mind. You know, the obsession, the attachment. So that's the problem with method chasing. So with spiritual bypassing, another thing is that, you know, at the ashram back home, people used to come to the ashram that were running away from something. Here's the irony, though. Maybe you don't want to deal with your family, like wife, husband giving you trouble, children, nightmare. So time to run to the ashram. I'm going to the Himalayas now. Um, but the problem is, if you thought being in a household was hard, try being in an ashram. It's even more neurotic. Like the power struggles between the various brothers and sisters. Like at least at home, people were content to just watch TV. At the ashram, they're doing practices that specifically bring out their dark sides. So now you're hanging out with a bunch of people who are working on themselves, who, by the way, are the most neurotic, the most unstable, the hardest people to live with. So isn't that an irony? If you can't even manage your regular friendships, don't bypass and run to an ashram because it's only worse there. Secondly, it, some, some people come to spirituality because they failed other stuff. So they didn't manage to make a lot of money. Um, they couldn't, you know, get fame. And as a way of rather than admitting their failure in life, they say, uh, you know, uh, you're fired. And they go, no, no, I quit just to save face. Or like, I'm breaking up with you. You're like, no, I'm breaking up with you. <laughs> that whole thing. It's like people do that all the time. They lose in the world and they go, ah, to hell with it. I'm renouncing the world. Not quite, right? Not quite. You lost the world. And now to save face, you are pretending that you never needed it anyway. Um, here's the irony, though. If you are unable to achieve great success in the world, if that was hard, meditation will be 10 times harder. You know, so in yoga, we often say this is not a path for the faint hearted. This is a path for conquerors for kings and queens, for the maharajas and maharanis. So you must already have that conqueror spirit. So if, you, if you can't storm and take a city, then it's going to be really difficult to storm the inner citadels of desire. So that's, that's one thing to remember. So another thing about spiritual bypassing is if you are still irritable and you are not um, grounded and loving and compassionate and reasonable and balanced, then the chances are your spiritual practice isn't internalized. Because there are two sides to spiritual practice. One is working your way up to an awakening. But two is coming back down the mountain and living that awakening. So if you're having an awakening, but you're not integrating it into your life, living that message, being an embodiment of what you learned, then what you have is knowledge, not wisdom. You know, wisdom is when knowledge becomes internalized, so much so that it becomes a way of being. 
So spiritual bypassing happens often when people have deep spiritual experiences. You know, and you're all very familiar with the born again Christian. They experience the love of Christ. It's a grand experience. You know, there's lights, there's drama, there's a lot of melodrama. And again, here is our obsession with melodrama, right? There's all this melodrama, and then we think we're done. And in fact, the Buddha said, enlightenment is not the end, it's the beginning. And I think that's an important phrase. You know, enlightenment is the beginning. So the goal was never to get there. The goal starts when you get there. It only it presupposes that. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, six, guru hunting. So this is also quite common. After a while of studying yoga, we get very excited about gurus. For the longest time, I just wanted to go to Rishikesh. I had to find mine. You know, they're out there somewhere. We've been together many lives. And the whole thing is, you know, the Zen quote, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, all that stuff. There's still, though, a craving in us to look for some external source, you know, someone outside of us to do it for us. So guru hunting is a veiled attempt um, at not taking responsibility for your own spirituality. So when we're not willing to do the work, we need a whip cracker. We're looking for someone outside ourselves to, like, push us to do the work. Um, but the truth of the matter is we're just not doing the work or we're looking for grace. We're looking for the guru to give us shaktipat or initiation or give us samadhi with three taps on our third eye. You know, we're looking for someone to, in a way, bypass, in a way, lubricate the journey for us. Um, maybe because we're unwilling to do it for ourselves. So guru hunting is still another form of spiritual materialism because it still doesn't address the problem, which is nothing outside of yourself can complete you. And ultimately, looking for a guru outside of yourself is the same thing as collecting teachings or collecting methods. It misses the point. It misses the point that it's an inward journey, you know? So guru hunting is dangerous. Um, and finally, seven, um, lack of focus. So a lot of us are very eclectic in our spiritual practice. This is good for beginners. So, you know, by now, you're probably realizing that a lot of what I've mentioned um, I wouldn't say to a beginner, you know, I wouldn't tell them the story about yoga, about how yoga, you know, I wouldn't take the romance away from yoga. I wouldn't tell them not to go out and buy books and crystals and all that stuff, you know, um, because that's good for beginners. It gets them in, it, it you know, it inspires faith. Um, experiences are good. Like you need to see Jesus once or twice, you know, you need to have that astral experience. And then you go, ah, okay, okay, I'm, I'm doing it. Even in the Yoga Sutra, it says, after meditating for a while, you should be able to check a few boxes. Like, if you focus on the tip of your nose, you, you should be able to smell a sweet smell. If you focus on the tip of your tongue, you should be able to taste a sweet thing. Is that the point of practice? By God, no. If I wanted to smell something sweet, I'd go spray perfume. If I want to taste something, I go lick chocolate, you know? I don't need to meditate six hours to do that. God forbid. But that's there just so you know, you know, something's happening. You're not doing it for nothing. So for beginners, that's good. But for people going along their path, um, it's about time to start consolidating. Because after a while, you realize you're spreading yourself thin over many different practices and not going very deeply into one. So that being said, practices can be complementary. And at different times in your journey, you might be drawn to different things. So at this stage, you might want Vipassana Buddhist meditation. You want something austere and serene. That's where I am right now. Like I'm, I'm attracted to anything that's nothing special. 
anything that's, um, you know, like simple and austere and I'm moving away from some of the gaudiness of like Kundalini and Tantra, you know, but at other times you need more energy work. So you move towards Kundalini and Tantra. And sometimes you need to do some bhakti and your call to chanting and kirtan. So that being said, at different times in your journey, you'll be called to different paths. When it's an authentic call, it feels qualitatively different than when it's your ego getting bored of something or worse, getting threatened by something. So when a path starts to work, that's when you'll want to abandon it. So that's my final thing today. You will feel a strong urge to go do something else, to go try something else. Um, maybe I should try that Reiki stuff, you know. Maybe I should try that um, Tibetan Tantra instead of, you know. All that stuff, it happens because the first defense of the ego against its own dissolution, because it sees it coming. You know, the ego, it's smarter. It sees it coming. As you start meditating, it realizes it's in danger. It, it notices that you care about it less and less. And then it starts to get scared. So it shakes things up in your life, you know? It goes, wait, you're not paying attention to me? Ah, what about this memory where you were betrayed? Look at me now. And then, you know, you will pay attention because in meditation, all the stuff comes up, right? But after a while, you learn to just let the stuff come up. And you don't really care about it so much. The ego will try. It'll pull everything. You'll even remember when you were like four and your mother dropped you. God forbid. But, you know, you'll remember all that stuff. It's like horrible. Like you'll remember everything that happened to you. And when that doesn't work, it'll remind you of past life stuff, you know? So when you've run out of traumas in this incarnation, you start to carry the baggage of your past traumas. And all of it is, a, is like the ego's last ditch attempt to get you to look at it, to be the ego. And the more you start to disengage, the more frightened it becomes. And it knows its strongest weapon is boredom. So it'll throw boredom in your way. You'll, you will get bored. You'll get bored of your path. You know, there'll be days where you're like, oh, meditation, not again. I'd much rather play singing bowls. You know, you want to do something else. Um, you want to stay like excited. But that's the number one, I think, um, debilitator on the spiritual path. When boredom hits and you don't persevere. So that's kind of one of the benefits of being in an ashram. Like if you're bored and you want to go home, you can't. They have all of your stuff. <laughs> You know, uh, <laughs> you can't. Uh, Ramdas makes a funny point. He he was saying when he was in the ashram in India, he slept on a reed mat on the floor. He spent it, most of his day looking out the window. He had one meal a day um, and he didn't own anything. And he was in bliss. He was in ecstasy. He loved it because he could, you know, go inward and all the choices were made for him. He didn't think, think about what to wear, what to eat. That was all sorted. He could just meditate. And then he read an article about uh, prison uh, prisoners of war, U.S. soldiers that were captured. And they said the same thing. They said when they were prisoners of war, they had one meal a day, they slept on the floor, they looked outside the window the whole time, and they suffered, you know? And I'm sure you've heard the quote, stone walls do not a prison make. So if you go to a Benedictine uh, monastery or something, it's like a prison. Everyone wears the same clothes. You don't get to choose what you eat. Often you don't get to talk. Um, and for some, that's bliss. For others, that's horrible. You know. So that being said, that boredom, it, it, it happens. And these monasteries, these ashrams are just a way to like kind of get you past it. But the danger is now we're urban yogis. You know, we, we live in a jungle of distractions. And not just that. And I, the, the worry here is not that you will get distracted by TV, you know, or like clubbing. 
Like most of us, we're beyond that. We're beyond the pull of that gratification. But I've noticed in my own practice that I am not quite beyond the attraction of other paths, you know, because they offer me novelty again. They offer me a way to get back to those spiritual highs I felt at the beginning of my path. And the question is, what will you do when the highs stop coming? You know, what will you do when you start to plateau? And what will you do when meditation starts to hurt? You know, because that's when something's happening. When all your old structures of self and the world start to crumble, and suddenly you feel like you don't know anything, you don't know who you are, you can't act, every decision feels wrong. What, what then? You know, what, what will you do? So it's a question that we need to ask ourselves in the spiritual community. And we need to ask ourselves, what tools do we have to persevere? So in closing, the ultimate tool that we could have, and maybe four of them, is one, uh, <laughs> take more shrooms. <laughs> yes, it's time to contract more astral gurus, you know. <laughs> if 250 didn't work, let's do, no, if, if 2.5 didn't work, let's do five. Terrence McKenna's Hero's Journey. In the dark room, eyes closed, you know. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> And maybe the three tools I'd like to offer, Shrooms, we'll, we'll table that, we'll put that there. The three tools I want to offer is one, um, try to protect your spiritual practice by not making too big a deal of the stuff that happens to you. You know, so if something happened, like something ecstatic happened, journal about it, but don't like talk about it. So resist the temptation to go to your partner or friend and like, you know, share all the time. Because you'll feel, you need to tell, you're like, oh my God, this is a, I gotta go. You know, someone's gotta hear this happened. Don't do that. Just try your best to like, just let it happen. Notice it, observe it. Don't get too excited. Like write in the note uh, journal, you know, see it. Cool. But keep it to yourself, you know. That, that can protect yourself against ego co-opting. Secondly, so you're keeping silent. That's one thing. Secondly, um, Figure out what your sadhana is exactly. So figure out what your formal practice or path is. You know, so if it's, if, if and, and you know, we have an eightfold path. So in yoga, we do our hatha yoga, we do our pranayama. Put like a schedule in your day for when those practices happen and then make a vow that no matter what, you will be on your mat that day, at that time, no matter what. So even if you're not feeling it that day, and, you know, there's a tendency, and in the East, this is a dangerous tendency, which is you feel like, maybe it's not for me today. I got to listen to my body, you know? That's valuable. That's really valuable. Um, it's important to listen to the body and go at your own pace. But that can be dangerous too, because the ego will start using that language, you know? It'll start saying, Nish, you're kind of sick today. Sit, 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 you know? Heal first, and then you can go and heal, you know? Like you'll say, Nish, you did three hours of yoga yesterday. Do you really need to do another three hours? Just chill, you know. Just skip to your pranayama. You're going to want to skip. You're going to want to, um, what is it, cut corners in your own practice, especially when it starts to get boring. When it starts to work, that's when you're going to want to do it. So try to make a vow with yourself. Say, uh, first figure out what the practice is and then make a vow. I'm going to do this every day. No matter what, especially when I don't want to, that's when I'm going to do it. And when I don't want to, I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm just going to watch, watch the craving come and go, watch the resistance come and go, you know? So that's there. Um, I'd also recommend making a list of like excuses that you notice coming up, you know? Just one more page of reading. 
before I practice, and then it doesn't happen. Or um, tomorrow I'll practice, or um, I'm sick today, I can't. Or maybe this would be more helpful if I spent time with these people and hung out. You know, socialize that might ground. You know, watch for all the little ways in which you cheat yourself out of your practice. Make sure you're practicing every day, rain or shine, traveling. You know, you're in the airport, whatever. Just do it. So that's that's the second thing. Keep silent and do it. And the third thing, and I think the third thing is is really important is is trying to stay honest. You know, about where you're not. So change your focus. Instead of looking at the highs in your spiritual practice, start to become interested in the lows. So become a connoisseur of sadness, so to speak. Um, when the depression hits, ah, something, that's where you got to go, you know. When there's discomfort, exquisite, you know, take that, take that. Um, if there's joy, whatever, I don't care anymore. That's not helping me, you know. Um, that joy, good, I'm enjoying it, it's there, I'm enjoying it. But no, no, I'm serious, I want to work. So watch that, you know, watch that. And I'm a huge clinger onto highs. You know, it's from my drug days, chasing experiences, you know, um, the desire to taste everything in the world, just so greedy, you know. And then it's easy to catch myself going, today I had a really deep meditation. Now I want that tomorrow, right? So tomorrow I start to think about what I did the previous day. So, oh, I fasted. Okay, good. I'll do that today. Um, oh, I had sandalwood on. No mirror. No mirror. Today I'll have sandalwood. Uh, what was I wearing? Ah, I was wearing my orange. Okay, good. I'll wear my orange. I'll have my direction. You try to, you become very anal retentive and you try to get all these details so you can mimic highs. You know, so watch for that. And that's something that I got caught doing. Mimicking highs, getting excited about highs, that kind of thing. So hopefully those three tools are helpful in the path of dodging the various pitfalls on the path. And above all, study, right? Study yourself, but study the scripture. And study really serious scripture, not just secondary sources, you know, like the, the, the um, there are great books, like wherever you go, there you are. Beautiful book, you know? Great books like that. But go to the source material. Study the Quran, study the Bible, study the Vrig Drisha Viveka, study the core, and see if you can balance your practice with your study. So that's it for today. I hope that was helpful. Sorry I went eight minutes over, got excited. Um, but we'll open the floor now for um, our discussion. Maybe you can share some of your own pitfalls, because these are all stuff that happened to me. But maybe there's some new stuff that I haven't heard about. Thank you, Austin. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm enjoying this chat a lot. <laughs> yeah. So tell me if I offended anybody or if... if um, you know, you, you identified with anything or if, if we're struggling with something now. Yeah, Austin says procrastinating. Yeah. Ugh. Ain't that the case? <laughs> I'm still really struggling with solidifying the practice. I've, like, really struggled with that the whole time. Like, just doing it every day. I'm getting meditation down, but sometimes it's, like, 15 minutes. <laughs> like, I just have to sit. That's, like, tough. Because I, I like to be in the flow, and I, that the ego gets me with the, like, just, like, take care of your body. Like, you're just tired. You need to rest. It's like, okay, I can rest in child's pose. But then I don't. <laughs> That's funny. Because, you know what? This is so tricky, Aline, because, like, you're... On, on some level, like, that's true, right? Like, we have to go... 
the the snake sheds its skin at the rate at which the snake sheds its skin. Where it's like we have to listen to the body. We can't. But it's different, right? I don't know if you you noticed um, if there's a qualitative difference when it's an actual bodily need and like an ego co-opting. Is there a difference, like qualitatively? I don't know yet. It's not. I need more time. <laughs> I, I feel like I have to like actually solidify it more before I can tell. Hmm. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and but I no- feel like probably. Probably, yeah. No, notice. And it depends, like, because I've been thinking a lot about, like, hmm? no, no, please continue. Oh, I've been thinking a lot about, like, can I, like, solidify practice where I have, like, half an hour meditation, half an hour yoga? But, like, for yoga, it's, like, really open to what that means. So, like, maybe I'm lying in Shavasana the whole time. (laughs) Like, (laughs) does that count? Like, I don't know. We're, We're figuring it out, we're thinking about it. No, that's interesting. You know, um, because then there's no excuse except for time constraints. Yeah, and even that's one of them, right? Like the time constraints, because they they can feel urgent but not important. Mm-hmm. Procrastinating and the confusion of religion is what's getting me wanting to jump into the void. <laughs> Procrastinating. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I want to talk about the confusion of religion thing. Like, what do you mean by that? Confusion of religion. So, um, I just come from a very uh, Catholic and religious household. I personally um, don't necessarily consider myself Christian or Catholic. Um, And there's just a lot of shoving of that to me uh, there's a lot of you should why aren't you and then it's just yeah <laughs> cognitive dissonance it just confuses me because I it just doesn't feel right to me so I just don't want to force myself and lie to myself and tell myself that it does when it doesn't. So. <laughs> I'm going to go jump into the void now. That's kind of the goal in yoga. <laughs> no, that's interesting because notice with what Eileen was saying, it's like you would never tell a beginner to ignore their body. It would be so dangerous, you know, because then they'll like become dogmatic about practice and they, you know, like, some days you really got it, you know, like for instance, you, we often don't practice on full moons in the Ashtanga tradition because there's an increased risk of injury on full moons. So we don't really do crazy poses. That might be a day for just Shavasana. Um, also, like sometimes when um, we're teaching and someone's on their period, for instance, we don't recommend going into inversions um, just because sometimes those days the body is less able to hold um, vigorous standing poses or upside down poses. So you don't, you know. So in that sense, you got to listen to the body or um, you got to know when it's Shavasana day, like that day, that's what you need, you know. Um, But there's a certain parameter in your practice in which that's allowed. And I think it's most true for physical yoga. So when it comes to eating or doing asana, that's where you have to listen to your body. But when it comes to meditation, I'll say don't listen at all, ever. 
Like if, if your practice is to meditate for 30 minutes, don't shortchange it. Like just do the whole 30. Even if you're clock watching, even if you're just sitting there like watching the clock and, and even if you're just like sitting there thinking, you got to do it, you know? So I think the listening to the body thing is definitely more true for physical practice as opposed to meditation. I don't know. That's, I would venture to say. I definitely felt you on the whole chasing highs thing because I feel like that's what like not really got me into it but like those were like my like results if that makes sense and I was like oh like it's working and then I always thought that was always going to happen and then it kind of like like plateaued like you said and I was like oh like it's kind of boring now and then when I would meditate like what you just said like physically like I felt no I wouldn't call it pain it's like more discomfort and like anxiety and then I just like be like oh I can't do this like it's it's fine let me just I'll just watch YouTube videos of Alan Watts saying something smart and then I'm, I'm good <laughs> like it's fine and like yeah yeah so I definitely felt that. It's like just what I needed to hear today. Good, good, good. I'm so happy to hear that. No, that's, I noticed that tendency in myself too, where I just like, I'm content to voyeuristically be spiritual. I like to read books of enlightened beings. I like to watch Sadhguru and Alan Watts. And, you know, my favorite is Sarva Priyananda. He's one of the swamis at the Vedanta ashram. Vedanta New York ashram. I love watching his talks, you know. Oh, I get such a high just being with beings like that. But it can substitute for the work, huh? <laughs> Let's call yeah. that spiritual consumerism. I'm going to put it on my list. Spiritual consumerism. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. I and, have a question. Sorry, yes, Phil, of course. Yeah, I had a question for Izzy when she was talking about the confusion with religion. Because I went through like a phase last year where I became like extremely Christian. Like I got like really swept up in it and leaving it and like trying to practice yoga or like go on a yogic path. Like they really condemned it and made me feel really guilty for it. And I was wondering like, is that what you're dealing with? Is like them telling you this is like demonic or something? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I I still struggle a lot with like the whole Christian guilt thing and it's sometimes it's really bad to where I just kind of like like I I currently don't practice anything right now because I'm I just can't where I am like in the household. Um but I am starting to meditate more so that's like the only thing I can kind of do, but it's really nice at the same time because it actually feels like I'm going farther because when I was doing more, a lot of like physical things, it just felt, I felt kind of like how um, Christina was saying, how you just kind of plateau exactly how Nish was saying it. Things just got boring and even though, like, I'm just going outside and just sitting there and breathing and just thinking or whatever, it feels a lot easier on my mental state now. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm like allowing myself to actually help myself. <laughs> but yeah, the Christian guilt's a thing. Yeah. One thing that kind of helped me deal with that was this one dude said something like, worship is the same, like it's all one. It's just like the time and place where it originated makes it different and it appears in different forms or it looks different ways. It's like we all are reaching for the exact same thing. And it's just crazy how some people can like hoard the truth and be like, this is it. Like Christianity is the only way. Yes, different paths up the same mountain. That's exactly how right. You know, I'll tell you a story. Once I had a student, um, she grew up in an incredibly conservative Christian community in like Midwestern America, you know, and she had the gifts like she was a prophetess. You know, she kept having visions. She saw auras and she was very interested in meditation and spirituality. And she just didn't have enough in her own spiritual framework to go deeper into that. You know, so she got interested in like Eastern ideas, like chakras and stuff like that, because there was just more stuff, you know, more technology. So she got a lot of persecution for it. And she eventually had to run away. Like she had to leave all of her stuff, get in a car and just drive across the U.S. And she was desperately looking for groups to help her understand what was going on with her. And so I met her in Ojai where I was having a retreat and I met her there and we talked and she came home and lived with us for a little bit. And she really liked yoga and that message and such cognitive dissonance, you know, because the asanas are demonic. You know, a lot of them are named after Hindu deities. Like it, they're, they're, it's legitimate. Also, I get it. Like, it's kind of scary if you're like a Western Christian and you see like an ash smeared fella with long dreadlocks and he's going, <laughs> I'd be worried too, guys. I'd be worried too. I worship a being with her tongue sticking out like, ah, and she's holding a human head in a sickle and they're, come on, I get it. I get it. It's kind of freaky. Like when you don't understand the philosophical underpinnings of the Hindu deities, what is going on here? You know, I'm scared of me sometimes. So like, I get it. So anyway, we were like teaching her, you know, and she came to our house and I showed her my altar and that was her moment of serious cognitive dissonance. Because on one hand, she loved the teaching and she loved my classes. But on another, she was looking at the Nataraja, a huge statue of the dancing Shiva. And that was idol worship. You know, it was everything that she was brought up to fear. I mean, that was Ashura. That was Baal. And I know Eileen has a connection to Ashura. So that's beautiful, you know. And so that, that I could see it on her face. She started to sweat. The cognitive dissonance was very real. Um, and it... That was the moment when, just like Lily was saying, I realized it was going to be difficult to make progress on a yoga path using any of that yoga imagery. So it was important to only speak. And, you know, the ultimate yogi is Jesus. Like, if if you really want to learn about yoga, Jesus is the man. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like Buddha says, don't look for permanence and impermanent things. Jesus goes, lay not up your heart where moth and rust doth corrupt. Where uh, Lay not up your treasures where moth and rust doth corrupt. Where your heart is, there your treasure lies, right? Yoga asks you for simplicity. Jesus says, look at the lavender. Even King Solomon was not clad, clad in raiment finer than this. Mwah. 
Yoga tells you to mind your own lane. Jesus is like, how canst thou speak of the mote in thy neighbor's eye when thou canst not see the log in thine own? Thy hypocrite, thou hypocrite. Like, oh, so everything that we say in yoga, Jesus says like beautifully, you know, false prophets, brood of vipers. They say, Lord and Lord, but they know me not. You know, all that stuff. Yeah. Little chef, Jesus. Uh, and, you know, I'm one of those people that historically don't think either the Buddha or Jesus existed. They're like kind of figureheads for true spiritual teachers, like a lot of them at the time. Um, but that, just beautiful. So then something clicked. When Paramahansa Yogananda, a great yogi, came to the West, he did not teach yoga in Eastern terms. If you visit Lake Shrine, you know, one of his ashrams here, it looks like a Catholic church. It's got stained glass windows. He plays his hymns on an organ. The language is all my Lord, my father, mother, you know, like just very Christian. You know what happened when the gypsies, and you know, people think the gypsies are Egyptian. They're actually Northern Indian. So modern ethnography shows that gypsies, um, they came from Northern India, the Roma people. And when they arrived in Europe from Northern India, and guess what Northern India was doing at that time? It was Tantra. It was goddess worship. So these are a bunch of goddess worshipers making their way to Europe. What are they going to do, right? Catholic church. You can worship Mary. So they all became Catholic. And the Virgin Mary became their Kali, became their Durga. So I learned that it might help you to not worry about the yoga stuff. But just, you know, exactly like Lily was saying, it's from the same place. So I would study St. John of the Cross, um, Izzy. You know, St. John of the Cross. Um, I think Ascent to Mount Carmel, Carmel and Dark Night of the Soul are some of my favorite yoga texts. It will teach you how to meditate. They just changed the word meditation to prayer and communing with God, but it's the same stuff. Technically, it's the same. Like how to meditate? St. John of the Cross, he's a Spanish mystic. He'll tell you, he'll say, first, you'll have a lot of distraction. At first, brushing away the distraction is enough. That's communing, you know? So study St. John of the Cross, study Teresa of Avila, you know? Teresa of Avila is a true yogi. Study Francis of Assisi. Keep your vernacular Western. Keep it within the Catholic Church. Another story I must tell you is Ramakrishna, the great sage of India. Um, he became enlightened to, through Tantra. You know what he did after he got enlightened? He became a Muslim. And he, he just like, he gave up all his Hinduism. He wore all the Muslim stuff. Yes, Gospel of Thomas is good. Um, the problem with Gospel of Thomas is it's a good Gnostic view, but it doesn't offer a lot of instruction. So you don't get a lot of like method, you know, but it's, it's definitely a read, especially when, he, when, when, when someone goes, but Mary, you know, Mary Magdalene, she's a woman. And Jesus says, bring Mary to me and I will make her a man. It's so weird. <laughs> the Gospel. <laughs> Jesus, you bring peace. No, I bring blood and steel. I don't know. It's a funny, funny little book. Anyway, um... Yeah, yeah, that's that's my favorite translation. That's a really good one. Hey, you can get it online. Um, there's like a free PDF of Elaine's translation. It's a really good one. Um, but yeah, there's all this Christian stuff. So Ramakrishna became a Muslim, and then he became enlightened that way. So he was like, okay, checks out. Quran, that's the path. Then he became a Christian, and he became enlightened a third time that way. And he was like, all right, checks out. So this fella tried all the paths and he can confirm, not just through a concept, like, oh, we're all one. No, no, he actually did it. And all the paths actually led to the same place, you know. So don't let the yoga stuff bother you. Yoga shloga, you know. (laughs) 
I sometimes want to be a Sufi. I just want to speak in terms of Allah and I want to talk Maktub and I just want to leave all this yoga nonsense behind, you know? Um, One thing that I noticed was my, I have a friend who like her parents kind of forced like religion on her to to a point to, to where she didn't even want to practice it. She almost developed like a resent as resentment for the religion. And that's kind of what happened with me with Islam because my dad kind of pushed it on me. But then like to kind of, like, like beat that resentment. I went in his room with him every night and like read the Quran with him. And like, I wanted to like see what he saw. And then I noticed that like a lot of what the Quran says is a lot of what these spiritual concepts are. And like, I feel like a good way to kind of like, like I've, I've kind of said this before in like another class, but I like to keep in mind that everything that happens, like, that we do is just, like, permission slips for the same thing. Like, Christianity, like, you can pray and, like, reach God or, like, whatever it is you're doing, like, they're just all permission slips. So you don't have to develop. You have to just, like, I don't know. Yeah, that was it. That's good. I like, permission slips. That's a beautiful phrase, Christina. Yeah. Permission slips. Yeah, uh, I, w- I would like to say something. Um, so I-, I heard of a term recently called omnism. Have you heard of this term? Omnism. Yeah. So it's like the belief that all religions have truth in them, right? And for me, that's like super crucial because I grew up Christian and then I took my shahada at 11. And I was the first out of my mom and dad to take their shahada. Well, my dad might have, but I wasn't talking to him. Um, I didn't know where his whereabouts was, but, but my mom took a shot afterwards because I never really, I just seen a discipline, you know, I just liked the, the discipline and the, and the prayers. But then when I left the country at 13, I realized that it's like everyone has their own interpretation of it. So at a young age, I really stopped caring about the text. Like the text meant nothing to me. I was like, oh, we're all seeking for happiness and love, like point blank period. How we say it is how we say it. Um, so then, I, but I did go through a point where I got super detached from all religion. Um, but that was just like, uh, I just still believe, I just still believe that it was like little mini truths and everything. Like, I'm like, yeah, that facts out. Everybody goes to hell. Who's not Muslim. No, nah, that doesn't fact out. Everyone goes to, like, that doesn't check out. That doesn't sit right with my moral code. And then I started looking up like new age religions. Um, and the, even, even, even like there's there's religions called like the nation of gods and goddesses on earth that was started in New York by Clarence 13X. Right? I started diving deep on all these little like these religions that not a lot of people talk about. Even free, even Scientology, like if you look at the Dianetics book, like he understands the subconscious mind very well. You know, it's just that we we well, people use it like this uh, equinox of Pisces to control. And that's the one thing I really hated was that whenever somebody tries to use your spirituality to control you. But now I'm, I did a couple different phases that you talked about, Nish. I went through a phase where I was running from my mistakes and my faults, and and I was just seeking spirituality for it instead. Like I left, I left, I got divorced and I took all my stuff in a car 
at like 22 and I just drove to California. But I didn't know where I was driving. Actually, I just was driving to the road stop. I had no idea. I was just searching, searching for self. Um, and I didn't care if I had to die to get there. Um, and during that journey, I had met someone. I was listening to some lecture and he was like, you can't always go to your highest self because then you're not want to communicate with anyone on their lower selves. So it was like, you'll, you'll, when you go so high and you go so he, and he was labeling as the count shocker. He was like, if you get so much in that, you'll be so dissatisfied with the world because you'll see the world is so fucked up. Sorry, excuse my language. Uh, but you'll see the world is so many problems because you're like, why aren't we meditating? Like the presidential debate, like somebody should just sit down and meditate. Like, are you, are you really getting disturbed by other people's feelings? So now, but now I'm a little bit more, I'm like an angry spiritualist. Now I'm trying to get, uh, now I'm trying to make friends. Like, I don't, I, I honestly find it hard for me to like people who eat meat. You know what I mean? It's like, dang, you really like that here? Like, I'm, I've become a little bit more, more mean, uh, uh, spiritually mean. So I, I, how do I, I wanted to ask your thoughts on that. Like, how did you, how do you stay away from that? Because I go into that fixed mindset where I'm just like, what, you're not doing yoga? You're not meditating every day? You cannot have my number, bro. Like, that's <laughs> That's, that's how I am right now. I'm sorry. I'm like super like that right now. Me super. I really appreciate it. Like yeah. Any thoughts? That that was a really good good point. I I feel that. <laughs> I I think it's fair to not. Well, <laughs> it's okay. Go for it, that's where like the challenge is is like those people that aren't um like spiritual or doing yoga like not it's not your job to like fix them or anything but like being around them like if that's a challenge that's something worth being around because it challenges you and like your ego and your just everything so that's mm-hmm. my take on it yeah, I'm reminded of that um, proverb, and I don't remember where it's from, but, like, that when you're on your spiritual journey, like, when you're kind of, like, there's a period where you're a sapling and you need, like, a little fence around you before you can go into this big, strong tree so that you can, like, really be centered and, like, really love those people who still need to have those experiences of, like, suffering, basically, um, and like just being an idiot also, um, I mean, you can be spiritual and also be an idiot, I guess, but like, you know what I'm getting at? Like the, the really frustrating things where you're like, Oh, if you could just see this one thing, like your life would be so much easier. Like there's a reason they can't see that thing yet. Um, and they need to take that time, take as much time as they need to see that thing. And if you don't want to be around them, that's fine. But like, you have to respect that not everyone's at the same place that you are and that you also, and remember that you also have things that you haven't seen yet that are going to make your life easier. Thank you. Thank you. Both of those, both of those resonated with me. Christina's resonated a lot with me. And this is the, one of the things I wanted to say too. And Nish, this is where, this is more, this is the better question. So I, I identify where this is coming from is because it's ego from it's ego from a previous family trauma, um, and I can't let go of it because I feel like I'm completely responsible for it since I'm like the last in my lineage. 
And my ego keeps bringing me back to that. So I get mad at the people because I'm like, oh, I can't be around you because I'm repeating the same generational trauma and dharma. And it means I haven't accelerated on my path. And it gets me, it gets me mad. It gets me sad. It makes me all types of emotions. Oh, can you elaborate on that about the generational trauma as experience when you're around those people? Yeah, so whenever I'm around those people, I think it's it's going to continue my trauma because because that's what that's where I came from. You know, I, I've seen uh, mm. just addicts, and people addicts of all type, like drug addict and like using food and and, and killing yourself from diabetes and cardiovascular health and becoming obese. So I just see it as all that. Like, I see it all interconnected. And I think my anger comes from, I get charged up because I just think of, every time I see somebody eat meat, I just, I sometimes think of the people that I've lost in my family or that died from bad health. And it just triggers me. And that's where the anger comes from. It, it always comes from there. I've noticed. I've really noticed. Especially after saying what you're saying. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get that. I get that. That's a, that's a bind. That's a tough one. Grace, did you have something to say? I saw you like light up a little bit. Yeah. Um, there's a joke and it goes, uh, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is one, but the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> so the way, the way I feel about this, and I mean, I'm not perfect, but I think um, you can have compassion for people who are suffering, um, but also not invite them into every day of your life. You know, I think that I, I believe that those two are, this, are possible together. And um, when you are spiritually elevated, you have a very, very valuable resource that you're carrying with you every day as you navigate life. And it's like sad, but like people who are in deep pain are going to be like gravitated toward that resource that you are carrying around with you. And it's a delicate balance because you have to be compassionate, of course, but also at the same time, you have to protect yourself, you know? So I just want to like encourage you to like make sure you're, you're protecting yourself. So that's, that's how I feel about that. That's a really good reminder, Grace. Thank you for that. Because on one level, um, that response that you're feeling belong like good on one level, because it's a protective mechanism that, you know, um, in the tarot, it would be the king of, not the king of swords, the knight of swords. Have you seen that image? Mm. Wait, Smith tarot. It's Galahad riding with sword up. It's, it's a very righteous figure. He knows what's worth defending and he knows where the evil is. So he's riding out to smite it. He's a liberator. He's a bringer of justice, you know? Um, so in a sense, it's a very positive feeling. It's a good righteousness coming from a place of knowing what's right and wrong in a way, knowing what's helpful and what's harmful, you know? Mm. The, the difficult thing is, you know, to Eileen's point, there's a very important thing, and that's from Ramakrishna, the sapling and the fence. And that's exactly what Grace was saying, too. Because Jesus, he hung out with, like, the least spiritual people, right? That was Jesus's, like, crew. He liked the tax collectors and the, you know, all the downtrodden people because he saw those as with the most potential for liberation. And uh, if you hear stories about great saints, they often like to hang out with, Worldly people sometimes, 
And other times it's the complete opposite. They'll throw them out of the ashram if they sense there's no spiritual like, yearning. So it's hard to say. But that's an important point. Jesus can do it, you know, because he's a realized being. But for this, for those of us on the path, grace is so right. Like there, there needs to be sangha, spiritual community, satsangha you know, coming together. So with that regard, the Yoga Sutra actually offers, I forget, I think it's it's book one, verse 32, maybe, 32 to 35, I think. Um, and it's the four locks and the four keys. So it says there are only four people that you can meet in this world. Happy people, sad people, wicked people, and virtuous people. So they will all fit into these these four categories. And these are the four locks. So when you meet them, you need the keys. So there are four keys for the four locks. When you meet happy people, the attitude is friendliness. You become their friends. If you meet sad people, the attitude is compassion, but not friendliness. You recognize your pain. You're compassionate because you were there too, but you don't really hang out with them. You know, If you meet virtuous people, the attitude is delight. You delight in their virtue. If you meet wicked people, the attitude is indifference. You know, so that's kind of the Yoga Sutra's way to navigate the social sphere, so to speak. Yeah, four locks, four keys, it's called. Um, but it's an interesting question because when you're around that and it reminds you of the ways those behaviors have harmed people that you love and cared about, and it's an inbuilt generational trauma, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on there. And... I don't know if there there's a there's an answer to it, but I think I think everything's been so helpful. Eileen and Grace, like this is a really important thing that healers need to know to become spiritual. It's so easy to want to help everyone, um, mm-hmm. but it, the the funny thing is, and I think maybe studying tantra might help Bilan in a way because there there is a sense in which spirituality is a ladder. So outside of Tantra, we think we're going from the root chakra to the crown chakra. You know, so we're going from dense, gross materiality and we're becoming subtler and subtler until we are pure Christ consciousness and then finally transcendental consciousness. But from the point of view of the crown chakra, the goal is the root chakra. You know, so in Tantra, two things are going on. Embodied beings are becoming disembodied spiritual consciousness, but spiritual consciousness has an urge to become embodied in order to enjoy and experience the world. So when you meet a being that's like eating meat and drinking wine, they might be like a little bit closer to source, you know, because they might have just started on their return journey, you know, whereas you're on your going home journey. Sorry, you're on your return journey and they're coming back down into the earth. So they're probably closer to source. You know, if you see it as a kind of U, the root chakra is here. This is the U shape. This is the realm of, I wish I had a whiteboard. I hate this realm of, in, you know, undifferentiated, pure consciousness, bliss, such and under. Like that, that bliss wants to incarnate. It wants to experience an embodied individual existence. So you might be on this upward swing like the return journey you know and another being might be here so relatively speaking they're closer to source they're closer to that bliss that purity you know um if you were to measure it linearly um and then you start to see if you start to realize if god is the only thing that exists which is the tantric view nothing exists but consciousness and all things are just 
uh, emanations or projections of consciousness, then even the meat and even the suffering is as much God as the pure meals, you know? So that, that view can help maybe, I don't know. So then you start to revere. So one thing, um, I'll tell you a story. There was a saint who got very angry at the Kumbha Mela. This reminded me of the quote, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, right? It's the fool card in the tarot. No, there's a, there's a saint. His name is uh, Swami Sri Yukteswar. So Yukteswar was at the Kumbha Mela. And the Kumbha Mela is like India's burning man. It's a huge festival. And I hope you will all come with me next year. It's from January to March. And every kind of spiritual person spiritual seeming person and anybody in between all gathers at this spot and it changes you know every year it's, a, it's like the olympics is in a different spot um but for three months everybody dunks in the ganga in the ganga river they teach they scream and shout all kinds of yogis it happens once every 12 years and it's been going on since like the middle ages so once sri yukteswar was at this kumbha mail and he's a saint. He's like enlightened, you know, and he's walking around and he suddenly sees all these fake spiritualists, you know, people pretending to be yogis um, just to get money, you know, swindlers, charlatans. And he gets so angry. He thinks, oh, my God, look at these people degrading and demeaning yoga. It's because of these people that yoga will lose face and then people won't practice. And then guess who he sees? He sees his master who, by the way, is Babaji, which is basically a god, you know, basically like the highest ascended master, not even on the physical plane. He sees this being, his master Babaji, manifest, incarnated, and washing the feet of the charlatans. You know, he's just going and washing the feet. And, and it's exactly like Jesus does. So one thing to kind of absolve that is to touch everyone's feet. It's so humbling. But um, that's kind of the... Namaskar, bowing, I see the light in you. So the real quest is, can you look into the eyes of the most despicable materialist person you know? And can you bring your hands over your heart and say, I see the light in you too? The, the predicament is if you look at Trump and you get angry, you have much work to do. You know, if you see Trump as an aggressor, as an oppressor, work is, you need to do work. The, the spiritual practice is so you can look into the eyes of President Donald Trump and see a hurt being and want to help that being find the light. But not even help that being, you know, not even that. Just recognize God as, as he is appearing in that moment, you know. Can you see Trump as God? Now that's the question of Tantra. Can you do it? I mean, can you fight Trump? Can you fight um, an administration you don't like but still see it as God? You know, that's Tantra. That's the ability to look your enemy in the eye with so much love. Think of Jesus, you know, he's not there going, ah, fuck these Romans, you know, what the fuck, what are they doing? He's looking at them and saying, within, you can see his eyes looking at them as they nail his wrist into the cross. He looks and he says, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. So sweet. It was not condescending. He wasn't condescending to them. Like, ah, they know nothing, these children. It was just like, ah. You know, because what's going on there, but God looking at God, you know, God getting put on the cross, God nailing, um, three women down there weeping, God, you know, what else is there? It's all just right here. It's God looking at God, looking at God, talking about God. What else is there but God, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, in Tantra, if you had a Tantric guru and uh, you, you said this, you know what they would tell you to do? 
They would tell you to eat the meat. <laughs> Hold on, what's this? Um, this kind of reminded me of the quote. Uh, it's because we're a bunch of little gods in a giant god farm. <laughs> little gods in a giant god farm. How about this, Izzy? We are um, god schizophrenia. <laughs> we are all voices in God's head. We are we are we are characters in God's dream. God playing with itself. I like the masturbatory reference. <laughs> no, yeah, it is creation. Is little... <laughs> God farm vibes. No, um, you know Rumi. Rumi. Um, he was like a very celebrated Islamic scholar before he became a poet. You know, he used to lecture in Turkey, um, in a town called Konya, and he met an ecstatic, basically a tantric practitioner named Shams. Um, Shams of Tabriz. Shams was a whirling dervish. You know, he kind of invented the dance and he was ecstatic and, and provocative. And he was Rumi's guru, right? So Rumi is a respectable Muslim. You know what Shams asks him to do? Shams says, go to a tavern and go buy me two jugs of wine. Rumi was horrified. <laughs> it was like the worst. Rumi was like, I don't want to hang out with those people. You know, and he says, no, go do it. If you really want to show me your spirituality, you said you do anything for me, huh? I'm your guru. Mm, go do it. So he had to go. He had to go to the tavern. And it's a very funny story. He went and he bought and he sat there and he hung out with people and he got to know people, know the taverners, know their woes. You know, he came down. That's what helped him write poetry that appealed to everyone. That's why they say a lot of his poems are centered around the tavern. You know, he's always talking about the wine, the, 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 that kind of Sufi flavor of inebriation. It's because in the tavern, that's where he had his awakening. I'm pretty sure he got the booth of there, too. <laughs> he got the, yeah, the, the bootcraft. <laughs> the bushcraft, yeah. He went to get the bootcraft, yeah. It was a cute story, and then he came back, and then Shams drank the wine, and he gave it to him, and he said, drink. And then he was about to drink, and then Shams was like, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. You proved it to me. And then he pours it on the floor, and a rose grows. It's a very beautiful okay. story. Um, but they say, you know, if, if a monk visits a tavern, the tavern will seem to him like a cell. If the haunter of taverns visits a monastery, the monastery will seem to him like a tavern. Hmm. If the Dalai Lama eats wow. that's powerful. That's different, you know, like the Dalai Lama eats meat. So if he's eating meat, that's different. That's different. If the really bigoted, like militaristic, you know, vegan who hates everyone who doesn't eat meat is eating raw foods, you know, the vibration, you can see how it's not the food, it's it's the attachment. Yeah. That was amazing. I appreciate everybody. Responses. It's a good discussion. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna dig that. I'm like gonna call you more often about this. What? I said I'm probably gonna talk to you a lot more often about this though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bilan visits the house every day, which I love. I love seeing. I love waking up and seeing Bilan in the living room. I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good night, guys. Okay, Christina, take care. Good night. Good night. Be well. Definitely out in Cali. Somebody said if I was out in Cali. Austin, yeah. Austin. Do I know this person? From somewhere? Austin? You haven't met Austin yet, but I have a feeling that you guys are really going to get it. Okay. Not this lifetime, loss. No, probably this lifetime. Yeah. Well, no, we haven't met this lifetime. Yes, yes. Correct. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. All right. Peace out, friends. Oh, farewell. Have a good night. Thank you so much.
for your contributions. Oh. So I have like so there's a theory about how I don't know where exactly I got it from, but it's essentially that we're living in a dream of a god. Like there's a god dreaming and we are the beings inside of that dream. And anytime this god wakes up, we kind of like disperse. <laughs> or it's like we we become a new. Yeah. It's a Vishnu Prashanti. It's it's a, it's from the Puranas and it's Vishnu's dream. So that's the first um, literary reference to that idea. Um, it's an old folklore called the Puranas in India. And you're right. It's, it's Vishnu sleeping. He sleeps on a couch, which is a serpent, Ananda. So there's a serpent and he sleeps on this serpent couch. And when he sleeps, he dreams the world into being. And when he wakes up, he withdraws the world back in. It's called pralaya, withdrawal. And then he falls asleep again and he dreams it back out. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I just thought it was crazy because I was like, what? Where, where did this come from? It's exactly right, though. Dream stuff. Yeah. The Brahim? Brahim? How, how do you say that? I'm sorry. Brahman. Brahman. Okay. Brahman. That's the name for God. Brahman. Oh. Yeah, it's the same as God, it's the same word. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's good, that's good. The sage. <laughs> that's, I love that one. Oh, my gosh. There's one where the god Indra um, manifests as a pig, and he forgets that he was the god Indra, and he's just a pig. And all the other gods are horrified that the king of the gods is now a pig. So they go to him and they're like, dude, you got to come back. You know, you got to, you're the king of the gods. You can't be here and squalor like a pig. And he goes, nah, nah, nah get out of here. I'm a pig. I love this. I love my pig life, you know? And they're like, what? So they try to convince him, but it's not going to work. So they go, the only way we can get him to realize, you know, is they start to, it's almost like a Job story. They start to kill his loved ones, you know? Like he loses his wife pig and his child pig. And finally he's like in suffering. And then he wakes up and he's like, wait a minute, I'm not a pig. I'm the king of the gods. And he wakes up and he goes, haha, no real suffering. And he's done. <laughs> oh my gosh. That yeah. sounds very interesting. There is no creation story in India. Like the world was never created, you know, because it, it never happened. That's one of those things. It's like none of this ever happened, you know. <laughs> I had a quick question, though. Nish, yeah. I wanted to hear your opinion on uh, dharma and understanding your personal dharma um, and how to elevate from that or under just, just a better understanding of it. I'm going to hear how you interpret it. Yeah, that's a big one, dharma. It's a big, big question because dharma means law. So the word translates to law. So the dharma of the sun is to shine or the dharma of the sunflower is to be a sunflower. So dharma is whenever something is fulfilling its unique function in existence. 
So most things do dharma effortlessly. So a sparrow is always in its dharma. The sparrow never pretends to be a snake. You know, the sparrow is a sparrow. It's doing its dharma. Um, that being said, the reason there's a dharma is because this world, this dream, in tantra we say happens because you as infinite bliss consciousness have a desire to experience, experience your singularity in plurality. So you want to create a multifaceted universe in which there are multiple, multiple beings all experiencing um, this creation. So you, as those individual vibrations, can experience um, yourself. Of course, take care. I'll see you Wednesday. We'll practice a little. Oh, Izzy, um, it's at 3 p.m. on Wednesday. 3 p.m. PST. I'm changing my time. Yeah. Okay. I haven't posted about it yet. But. 3 p.m. is 6 for me. Yes, 3 Pacific. So that's, you know, not sure, but. No, no it's not 6. It's 5. It's 5. In Houston? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. <laughs> 3 Pacific, though, 3 o'clock. Okay. I'll, hopefully, I see you. Bye, though. Take care. Thank you for your lovely questions. But yeah, so that being said, each individual expression has a function, like a dharma. So that dharma is usually something that brings the being a lot of pleasure, a lot of joy, a lot of fulfillment. So when you come into this world, you as a specific individual vibration of God have an individual specific function inside the vibratory scheme of reality. That's your dharma. And the dharma changes at different stages of your life, but it's a calling or a purpose. And you feel on a very deep level moved to do something, whether it's teaching or playing music. Problem is, um, a lot of us don't do our dharma so you can imagine the person who is called to be a concert piano player, but her parents want her to be a doctor. So she goes to medical school instead of pursuing her dreams as a piano player. In that case, she's going to feel very unfulfilled and she'll get to the end of her life feeling like she missed out on something. When you do your dharma, it becomes a path to spiritual practice. So if she were to just, you know, run away from home and go the whole route and be a piano player, eventually she will... Um, discover truths about the universe and about herself that will help her along her way. So dharma leads to moksha or liberation. If you don't do your dharma, you have to keep incarnating until you finally get the point. So that's, I guess, in summary, what dharma is. And what and what if someone? What if people haven't reached their uh, dharma before that you know of in your in your life? What's your, thought, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's very common. A lot of people know what their dharma is, but don't act on it. They don't live their dreams. A lot of people don't know what their dharma is. <laughs> um, and that's a tragedy. And you know what? There's a question. What's the difference between karma and dharma? And how does karma influence your dharma? So that's why there's like a caste system in India. Um, it's not a phys like it's not supposed to be an actually socially enforced caste system. The idea is just that each of us come into this world with different proclivities. So some of us come into this world and our motivation is pleasure, 
And even Socrates, um, in his, in Plato's Republic, Socrates talks about these castes, you know, there are the guardians, there are the merchants, and there are the, um, soldiers or whatever. Similarly, there are the shudras, meaning that this, you know, the lowest caste, but that's not how it was seen in ancient India. All the castes were equally valid. So there's the shudras who karmically were very young souls maybe, and they were in and they were mostly interested in pleasure and physical gratification. So they were mostly laborers and they formed the blue collar work of society. Then you had the vaishas who were merchants and they were more excited about money and, and trade, so they became the merchants of society. Then you had the kshatriyas, or the knights, who were interested in nobility, virtue, and justice. They became rulers, and that was their dharma. And then you had the brahmins, who were interested in philosophy and religion, so that was their dharma. So each of them had an allotted function in Indian society, and no function was seen as greater or worse than any other function. But that function was determined by your karma. So if you performed your duties as a shudra well, eventually you might incarnate into a vaisha or a kshatriya or a brahmin. But if you as a brahmin used your spiritual authority to collect sense gratifications, you would reincarnate as a shudra. So in a way, your karma or the actions in this life determine what your dharma will be in the next life. So if you spend in this life a lot of time learning spirituality, and should you become um, somewhat advanced on your path, your next life, you will continue those tendencies, and your dharma will likely to be to teach or to um, perform or something, like make art. You know, so a lot of artists that's mm-hmm. their dharma because in a previous life they were um, very engaged in spiritual work, or they're coming down from higher planes. So there that's are so true. That is so true. Yeah. You know how many artist friends? I, I had to read so many books to grow myself because I didn't have the information. And I would have friends that make music that are really good, and they would just be expressing their emotions, but explaining text that that I had to read in order for me to understand. And I was just like, wow, you, you, you just you just you just mastered unconsciously from your dharma what I've been reading about and searching for for 10 years. Like, it's crazy. It's amazing. It's amazing. I, I, I think I've learned to uh, accept it, but I still have some some uh, some clarity to work through. I think I think there's still some areas where there's. It's not as as aligned as I'd like it to be, um, but there was a book called "Know Thyself" by Dr. Naeem Akbar, and he and he talked about purpose, you know, because I was looking at purpose, and he he broke down purpose so eloquently, in my opinion. He said that you have a purpose for yourself, which you like that has nothing to do with anyone else. Then you have a purpose for your family, which is like the, the, the last three to five generations. Like whether it's healing, healing their problems and things that they weren't able to manifest, or continuing their legacy, and then you had uh, your ethnic background, which is a little bit more time than the generations, and then he had the the whole planet. So then you, so it's like these all are just little purposes, and I wonder how that translates in uh, in, uh, uh, in in the philosophy of yoga. And I feel like it has so much to do with Dharma and karma, but I'm not 100% sure how. And I try to uh, know, uh, like I know, and I feel like I know a little bit, like sub, like my intuition, but yeah. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point because in yoga philosophy, the performance of your dharma automatically achieves the most ideal outcome for all of those groups that you mentioned. You know, mm. so say your dharma was to be, yeah, yeah, it's almost like you have to work through karmic depths to get to the next level. That's precisely right. Um, and you know, Bilan, you kind of hint at some of these karmas because. You're born into a specific ethnicity, family, um, social status because of those karmic debts. You know, so that kind of starting hand, so to speak, that you've been dealt, it isn't random. It comes from a cause and effect of previous incarnations. So now you're here and you've got this family to heal. You've got this planet to heal. I mean, maybe you get born during the time of nuclear cold war or, or something or maybe you get born during a time when the environment's really bad like right now or something like that um so what you need to do for the planet for your family for your yeah country exactly where you get born what country to what parents you chose all of that or, or i shouldn't say you chose all of that those all were effects of your previous karma you know um so the baggage that you have to heal you know, like how much maybe weight, karmically speaking, your family, your planet, your country, your ethnicity carries is totally um, determined by that karma. Now, the proper functioning of the Dharma in that incarnation will achieve the best outcomes for all those groups, but they aren't five different Dharmas. So it isn't that you have a Dharma for your family and then a dharma for your planet or then a dharma for your you know um ethnicity rather you just have a singular dharma so maybe an example if a person was called to music if that was their purpose and that's what turned them on you could say that was their dharma in the process of them learning to play guitar and become really proficient at their instrument, it makes them happy and they become a positive influence in their household. So where there used to be bitterness and anger, the unresolved like feelings of unfulfillment, now at Turkey, uh, sorry, Turkey, at Thanksgiving, you're there happy because you're playing guitar all day. You know, you're doing your dharma. So you're sitting there happy and suddenly your family gets better. Like the relationships in your family get better. Um, you play guitar and you become really famous. And there aren't any famous black guitar players before Jimi Hendrix and Otis Redding. So once Jimi shows up, people go, oh, now other um, African-American guitar players have a role model. And so the ethnicity is helped. You know, and Jimi Hendrix's... Um, previous incarnations and his lineage that's helped by his current dharma and finally the planet is helped because he's able to provide music that increases the vibration of the planet as a whole so all he had to do is play his guitar that was his dharma but in so doing he inadvertently affected on a positive level every other element of his life family ethnicity planet um, country all that stuff so that being said um, it's in, in, in yoga philosophy, there's one Dharma, not many different ones. How do we do there? Yeah. Yeah. I hope that was helpful. Um, that's, that's sort of the best I got. Yeah, that was mad helpful. All right, Austin. Thank you so much for coming by. Austin just is just about to be a SAG-AFRA 
um, union actor right now. So special day, special day for Austin. No, that was that was enlight that was enlightening for sure. Good night, Austin. Take care. Sleep beautifully. Yeah, I'm gonna let you go too because I feel like we can have so many conversations. Yeah, I can't wait to make you some tea and we'll sit around and we'll Dharma, Dharma talks. You know? And I have this weird, I have this weird, like perception that all the Tauruses I meet are just like previous, uh, like ancestors I didn't get to meet yet because it's like I've only met a few of them, but every single last one of them, they've explained. I'm gonna break it. They've explained so much of my life that I needed to know. So I appreciate that, but I'm going to let you go so I can finish up. Thank you, brother. I, I really appreciate the kind words and the support. Um, and Cal, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for the sweet words. And I do hope the tips were helpful. I do hope that we can all do something with them. Thank you so much. And Lily, it's always a joy to see you. Yes, um, thank you so much. I'm going to head out too. Yeah, maybe I'll see you guys Wednesday. And remember, we're doing uh, 3 o'clock this week, 3, 3 p.m. Pacific. So I'm changing my schedule. It's no longer 1, it's 3. Okay. Cool. All right, gang. Good night to you all. Sleep well, everybody. Sleep well. Namaste. Peace, peace, peace. <laughs>